Welcome to Pushing Up Lilies. I'm your host, Julie Matson. Pushing Up Lilies is a weekly true crime podcast with spine-tingling, unusual, and terrifyingly true stories from my perspective as a forensic death investigator and a sexual assault nurse examiner. Do I have some stories for you? Are you ready? I like to look back at really old cases sometimes because it's amazing how far we've come with DNA and just investigations in general. I ran across a case of familicide, which is kind of what we've been covering this month in the cases of Shanann Watts and Lacey Peterson, where someone actually kills their spouse and also their children. And so going back, like this happened way back in the 1900s. And you wouldn't really think that. I don't know. I mean, I know stress levels were high even back then because people worked and owned farms and had careers. But it just seems like the stress of the hustle and bustle these days would actually push people to the limits more frequently. It's hard to imagine not being alive back then that the stress level would be high enough back in the 1900s for people to commit the same crimes that they're committing now. I don't know, maybe longer drives to work, maybe unreliable transportation. I'm sure you still have issues with coworkers that people have these days. The stress of just being a parent in general, I guess, was still there. So I, I sat down and started thinking about it. And I was like, you know, it's really not that unusual that it would have happened back then. There was a case of a major league baseball player. I found this kind of funny because the team he played for was the Boston Bean Eaters. And I'm not sure who came up with that. It's very creative and unusual. I have to say that for sure. But I mean, I don't know if I'd be proud to say I play for the Bean Eaters. I don't know. It's not like the Cowboys or the Vikings or the Bison or all those teams that we follow, it's like I was a bean eater. I mean, it's just weird. But that was the name of the team that Marty Bergen played for. Now, he played, and this, again, was a major league baseball team. He played from 1896 to 1899. I mean, that was a heck of a long time ago. He suffered a lot from paranoia, hallucinations, And there are conflicting stories on whether or not he ever sought help or treatment. He was thought to be an alcoholic because of his behavior at ball practice. And a lot of the guys that he played ball with thought that he just drank a lot. And that was what caused his strange behaviors. But he's still remembered as one of the greatest catchers in MLB history. So. This guy is still well-known and is still somewhat celebrated. Now, he lived in Brookfield, Massachusetts. He lived with his daughter, Florence, his son, Joseph, and his wife, Harriet. He had actually bought a farm. It was kind of not too far from the city, but it was a farmhouse about one and a half stories Everyone said that it was really important to him to provide for his family and to spend time and be there for his kids. His strange behaviors, though, 
had gone on for a long time. So he felt like someone was always out to get him. And I know we've all met that person that, woe is me, I call them Eeyores, where something's always wrong and somebody's always out to get them or after them or wants their job. Just pitiful being around people like that in many cases. Some of the teammates that he played with on the Bean Eaters MLB team were actually afraid of him. He would occasionally just abandon the team for days, just decide he didn't want to play and just disappear. And then when he came back, they would let him play. I mean, that wouldn't happen these days, right? If an MLB or an NFL player just decided to jump the bus on the way to a game or not show. I mean, it wouldn't happen. They wouldn't get to keep playing. So anyway, he had reportedly consulted a physician and even a clergy to get some help from them, but it really didn't pan out. Again, there's some conflicting stories that say that he never tried to get help. We will never know because it was so long ago. Try to get those medical records from 1900. There was no psychiatry yet, though, back then, and there was really no effective way to deal with this condition. So they believed that he was kind of schizophrenic, paranoid, delusional, just angry, those types of things. But they say that even from childhood and as a teenager, that he showed signs of anxiety and stress. Of course, I don't know much about his background other than the fact that his brother Billy also played Major League Baseball and was very good. They were both catchers and were very well known. He married in 1893. His wife was actually three to four years older than him. The strange thing is, reading about this, The Bean Eaters had a regular catcher that played for them, and he was trying to hop a train and ended up falling. Both of his legs had to be amputated. So this was in 1893, and the team had a really hard time finding his replacement. And so it wasn't till 1896, three years later, that they actually found Marty Bergen, and he was hired as a catcher for the team. He would say, that after the season ended, he would love to beat some of his team members. He commonly fought with teammates. In 1898, he actually struck Hall of Famer Vic Willis in the head during breakfast with, I believe, a baseball bat. And then after an altercation on the bench with teammates, that's when he said he actually wanted to bludgeon some of his teammates with a bat. Now, supposedly, his son, Willis, died of diphtheria, or Willie, sorry, his son, Willie, died of diphtheria at the age of three. Again, some articles say age of three, some say age of five, so there's a little bit of a difference. And I'm sure the standards for journalism were not near as high back then as they are now, so we'll just say that. But his son died of diphtheria. Of course, we have a vaccine for that now, but it wasn't developed until the 1920s, so kind of missed that boat. But he had to miss the funeral because he was on the road so much for the baseball team. 
So the story is that he would ask for time off because reportedly it was important to him that he got time off to be with his kids and he wanted to provide for his family. That was obviously a big deal for him. The fact that he couldn't be there for the funeral when his three or five year old passed away was a big deal. And so when he would ask for time off to be with his kids or to be with his family, if he was told no, he would take it anyway. He would get off a train and go home when they were on their way to a baseball game. He really just wasn't reliable, although he was really good. And that's one reason why they kept him, because he was such an amazing catcher, but not always there. Again, just kind of did his own thing. And they continued to let that happen. I mean, his altercations and disagreements with the team continued because he was always fighting them. He got to the point he felt like someone was watching him. He thought that his wife was poisoning him at one point. He started walking sideways because he thought someone was going to come up behind him and try to kill him. And so if he walked sideways, he could look both in front and in back of him, which that's weird. I mean, if you and I saw somebody walking down the street sideways, we'd be like, what the hell? Like something's wrong with that person. Again, the sad, sad part is we're talking about mental health issues. And back then there were just no people to help. I mean, there were no psychiatrists, not a lot of medications that you could give to these people that wouldn't put them in a practically vegetative state. Unfortunate, right, that he was born back in the 1800s and not in 2020 because he could have functioned probably as a normal human had that been the case, which I don't know, it's not. But anyway, what this guy did was kill his wife, his six-year-old daughter, and his three-year-old son. Of course, he'd already lost the other three-year-old son, but he then slit his own throat with a razor. And a lot of the news stories say that he nearly decapitated himself and then threw the knife on the nearby table where it landed and was found. A lot of people were like criticizing law enforcement for assuming that he did it and that it wasn't a homicide because the knife was on the table and he was on the floor after collapsing because he had decapitated himself. I think a lot of that is just journalism and the way the stories are written and not so much what went down because who knows, someone could have picked up the knife and put it on the table. Because there was such a big deal made about the knife being on the table and him being on the floor and the fact that he wouldn't have been able to lay the knife down after he practically decapitated himself caused a lot of issues. And again, someone could have picked it up, found it on the table, but journalism just was different, like I said. And a lot of it is the way the stories are written. Any of us, and of course, I had journalism experience and won journalism awards in high school and actually wrote for a newspaper once and still, you know, writing my investigation reports, it's very important the way you word things. I mean, who knows? They may not have had very high standards or even known what they were doing. I mean, it was a long, long time ago. So he killed the entire family and they're thinking that it's probably sometime between bedtime and breakfast because 
It looked like everyone was in their bed clothes at the time of the murders. It looked like he had actually started his morning ritual of taking the ashes out of the fireplace and putting newspaper in there. He normally would put wood on the fire before the family got up, but he had not yet put the wood on the fire. So reportedly, his father, Michael, found the entire family. He stopped by the house to pick up milk and then discovered the entire family dead. Bergen was in the kitchen in a pool of blood. His throat was cut. Again, a razor was on a nearby table. His daughter Florence was beside him, and she had severe damage to her skull. Apparently, he beat the entire family with an axe, and we know he could swing, so I'm sure he had strength in his arms. Harriet and Joseph, the three-year-old, were in bed, and they both had head wounds. Now, a lot of us in forensics are going to have a lot of questions, again, that would probably never be able to be answered. I'm sure there was no DNA testing on the razor. There are a lot of things that probably weren't done because of just the time that it was. The general consensus is that it was a suicide. And again, such a shame that healthcare was different back then and the medications that we have today weren't available to him. And of course, normally all of these stories end in he's in prison here and he was bludgeoned to death by other inmates because he killed children. That's what we would expect the end to be. But in this case, he is actually deceased. So just a reminded me when I was in nursing school and I was in Vernon, Texas, and I was at the State Forensic Mental Institution or Mental Hospital there, and I think I've mentioned that to y'all before, we were able to actually go into the common area where they had foosball tables and shuffleboard and coffee pots, and everyone was allowed to just congregate in this area during the day and watch TV together. We were allowed to just choose whoever we wanted to and sit and talk to them and discuss why they were there, you know, what they did. And of course, we also had access to the medical records. And so we were allowed to go in that room and read all about all these people. And we could do it before we talked to them or we could wait and do it after. Sometimes it was fun to kind of guess why they were there. Because honestly, I mean, they're medicated and a lot of them at this point seem normal. I mean, that was the scary part about it, I think, to me, is I kept thinking to myself, if I saw this person in public, I would totally think they were a normal person. Like, he does not look like a serial killer. He does not look like he would gouge someone's eyeballs out and eat them. Like, it was just a very eerie feeling. Thank God for medications, right? Which they didn't have back in the 1900s. Of course, I don't know his name. I wouldn't remember it if he told me, because this was back in 19, probably, gosh, 93. But he told me that he killed his entire family. I think he had three children. And then he killed his wife. And then he burned his house down. And so I'm sitting next to this guy. And he's just telling me this story. So matter-of-factly, like, just going to work. Like, hey, this happened. And it just blew my mind. And, of course, I don't remember how much time had passed since he'd done it since I talked to him. So... Plus, you know, there's medication. So, I mean, he did not show emotion. 
He was very matter of fact and told me when I asked him why he did it, that he heard voices and it was obvious he was schizophrenic and paranoid. Of course, I was younger back then and a little bit nervous, honestly. And so there are a lot of questions I can think of now that I wish I had asked back then, but I didn't because I didn't know what I know now and I haven't seen the things that I've seen back in 93. So it blows me away how medications can stabilize people and they can seem normal. A lot of us honestly probably work with a lot of people who would straight up kill us or their coworkers if they didn't have their medications. Again, though, super crazy to think that things like this happened way back then. Again, don't know why, but I just figured that the stress levels were easier to deal with. But in thinking back, I'm sure they suffered from stress and anxiety and depression the same as people do nowadays. It just often goes undiagnosed and untreated, as do a lot of mental illnesses now. Super sad that so many people are suffering and can't afford health care and are unable to get their medications filled and take the medications that they need to not only survive in a crazy, stressful world, but also just manage everyday illnesses like diabetes and hypertension. But don't get me started on that. I know when I did home health care, I had several patients that I would go check on who were unable, even with insurance, to afford their medications for high blood pressure. And I would go to the pharmacy and pick up their medications. And many times they were only 5 or $10. But knowing that I was able to do that and help them, I mean, I can't go to their house and check their blood pressure every week and it'd be 200 over 150 and then go home and sleep at night knowing that I could have helped and I didn't. Again, it wasn't that they were non-compliant and unwilling to take these medications. It was just that they simply could not afford them. And so that's the case we all know these days with many people who are unable to And we do have the non-compliant people who just think that they are immune from illness and regardless of the fact that their father died of coronary artery disease at the age of 40, that they're going to live to be 110 without ever seeing a doctor. And those are things we see in healthcare all the time. Anyway, I wanted to share this story with y'all because it's not one that you'll see on Netflix and it's not one that you'll see in a documentary because it's an old story and it's not John Bonet Ramsey and it's not Scott Peterson. It's not Chris Watts. The new stories are interesting, but the old stories are to me too, just for different reasons. Just looking back at the story, I cannot imagine using a razor and slitting my own throat to the point that I'm nearly decapitated. And that could have been a little bit of a stretch for the people who wrote the articles as well. But I just cannot imagine doing that. That has to be a dang sharp razor, I tell you what. Anyway, something to think about. Mental health status. If you have issues and need to talk about them, if you don't have a friend or a family member that you can confide in, there's always somebody that you can talk to and many different organizations that provide help and counseling. 
that are free of charge. And I know that nurses, we serve as makeshift counselors for our patients many times. Even in different career fields as a nurse, we almost feel like bartenders. You know, people share things with us that they don't otherwise share. Even in current scenes that I go to, people share drug addictions and those types of things with me that they won't share with police because I'm not in a uniform. I am maybe more approachable. And that's just the way people feel about it. I think they just view nurses as helpers and caregivers. And even though police are the same, there's just something about a nurse that makes people want to spill it all. I hope you found this story as interesting as I did. And if you do have any stories that you would like for me to look into and investigate and talk about, or if you know anybody that was directly involved in a case that you think may want to be interviewed and talk about the case with me, that would be amazing. I hope everyone has a wonderful week and I look forward to sharing the next episode with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Pushing Up Lilies. If you like this podcast and would like to share with others, please do me a quick favor and leave a review on Apple Podcast. This helps to make the podcast more visible to the public. Thanks again for spending your time with me and be sure to visit me at pushinguplilies.com for merchandise and past episodes.